assuming direct control. AK-47s for everyone. Nuclear launch detected. While the enemies of the Emperor still draw breath, there can be no peace. It's time people learn that this freedom doesn't come for free. Game over, man. Game over. Hi, I'm Matthew Hipple, President of the Center for International Maritime Security. And if you're listening to this, it is not an episode of Sea Control. Some of our Sea Control listeners may be a bit confused, but we are bringing to you, and advertising, of course, our inaugural uh, episode of the Real-Time Strategy Podcast. Now, you are familiar with our usual lineup at Simsec and uh, on the Sea Control Podcast, and we typically uh, attack... What is real? What's going on in the real world? The technology, the history, uh, the potential for the future. But so many of the theories and ideas that underlie what it is we think about the past, the present, and the future, uh, those are all simulations. They're all theories. They're all fiction. Um, And so what we thought is that why not do a podcast on those simulations? You know, we're all young guys with too much time on our hands. Don't tell that to anyone that we work for. Uh, So we do play video games, we play board games, we're involved in that kind of stuff, so why not? Let's start kind of attacking, uh, talking about those kinds of topics. How do you, what do you learn about strategy from playing the game Diplomacy? Uh, what can you learn about military operations from a, playing a game like DEFCON? What shouldn't you learn? What, underline, shouldn't you learn from simulations and different kinds of games because people do walk away uh, with the wrong ideas? Uh, you know, people who play uh, Battlefield and think that's real life, a uh, a sterling example. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we'll be joined by Lucien Gautier, Brett Perry, Adam Elkis, and myself, uh, and I will introduce them after this short break. SimSec brings you the best content on maritime security, technology, history, and international affairs. And like the United States. Simsec is and always will be free. Sign up to become a member today by visiting www.cimsec.org/about/membership, which gets you daily emails of our articles and a WordPress account that sends your own writings directly to our editorial staff. However, admin, special projects, software, events, and prizes do cost money. There is a new option to make a voluntary monthly donation at the bottom of every SimSec article. No matter how you choose to support us, those who volunteer for leadership, our amazing content producers, our readers, our listeners, our conference planners and attendees, and our financial benefactors, we are incredibly grateful. Remember, SimSec is more than just a website. We are a vibrant community built on a passion for discovery and discussion. Sign up, write, donate, comment, or even leave five stars on our iTunes page. Join us today. And here we are. So, the inaugural edition of the Real-Time Strategy Podcast. Games, video, board, and otherwise, and uh, what we can and should not learn about strategy, policy, history, and what have you. Uh, from them. So I will introduce our lineup. You already 
know me, if you're meeting me for the first time, I'm president here at Simsec. I'm an active duty naval officer, though anything that I say does not reflect the policy of the United States government, Navy, or the Department of Defense. Um, and a uh, writer for War on the Rocks and USNI. And uh, I'll go ahead and in no order in particular, Lucian, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Lucian, you are on mute. I am on mute. There we go. Uh, well, yeah, I'm Lucian Gothier. I'm a listed sailor. And standard uh, disclaimer applies, just in the case of with Matt, that nothing I say reflects upon uh, government policy or position. Um, been in the Navy about 10 years now, and uh, I'm the, on the editorial board for SimSec. I'm on the task force innovation for the Secretary of the Navy, and I'm a member of the CNO's Rapid Innovation Cell as well as I really enjoy strategy turn-based video games, and I'm slowly warming to real-time strategy games as well. Remind me to talk to you about Fleet Battle School. Because um, I guess I'm on the crick now, too. I had to take over for uh, Jerome Lademan, who uh, you guys maybe remember from one of our other podcasts. Uh, Adam, go ahead. Introduce yourself to the audience. My name's uh, Adam Elkis. I'm a PhD student in computational social science at George Mason University. All of the standard claimers apply as well. What I say is just my own ramblings. I, my interest in my interest in strategy and games comes from that. Uh, my my own my research interests are a cross between traditional and more social scientific ways of simulating strategy. Traditional way of, of, of having an actual having an actual game or game or war game representation and the social science way of more of uh, game theory strategies and com computer models. So I'm pretty thrilled to uh, be on this podcast with everyone else here. And last but not least, Brett, go ahead. Hello, I am Brett Perry, and I'm thrilled to be here as well. Uh, just a little about me. I currently work at a firm, Avocent. Uh, it's a defense consulting firm, and then before that, I had the chance to um, uh, spend some time uh, with the Defense Department in some various places. I'm also the Director of Membership at SimSec. Um, as with uh, my three colleagues, the standard disclaimers apply. This is just kind of me rambling about video games, which I uh, which I really enjoy, and I'm kind of all over the board, whether it's First, uh, you know, first-person shooter, or you know, kind of the strategy, or even some of the hardcore um, simps. You know, I enjoy them all, and I'm looking forward to sharing my uh, commentary with you all. All right, perfect. So our goal in this uh, little shindig is to kind of keep it light, talk about sort of our observations. But uh, today, we're not going to pick a game in particular. We're just going to talk about, generally speaking, where we're going to go with the podcast. Um, so if it seems like we're a little bit, uh, I don't know, stiffer than uh, often we show up on the other podcasts, we're still trying to figure ourselves out. So uh, how about I open open the floor then, and uh, I'm, I'm going into like my interview mode instincts here, guys, so uh, feel free to inter interrupt me at any moment, and, uh, and one another, of course. But uh, let's just start talking, get the juices flowing. Um, favorite game for sort of teaching people, generally speaking, about the military or strategy? I'll go first, since you know, I'll give the example here. So something that I uh, I've been playing is war games. Um, I think it's the the Dutch or the Netherlands folks. Um, those are the same thing, right? Uh, I'm an idiot. It's actually, Whatever. French. And French. They're very, they're very very passionate about that. Oh yeah, it's amazing. And so, so the French units are very strong. Oh, of course they are. <laughs> so 
If anyone's if anyone has not played this this war game series, uh, when I first played it, it's a, it's a real time strategy game. You've got units that deploy as like solid platoons and stuff like that. So you won't have individual units like you'll have in StarCraft or something like that. Um, and the thing that shocked me when I first played it is I just assumed, oh, I like real-time strategies. I don't need to read the instruction book. And so I played North Korea, and I just bought a 1,000 million really cheap and crappy tanks. And I was like, oh, I'll just rush the other side of the map. And then they stop halfway across the map, and I can't figure out why they won't fight. And then A-10s come in and wipe them out. And then I realized that I actually have to, like, refuel all of them. So the part that I, I really like, uh, really like in this game is is the logistics piece. You know, you can take strong points in the map, and you can do a lot of clever stuff, but ultimately you can run out of ammunition, and it sort of forces people to manage when they build their armies before they deploy them, and how they deploy them in the field. If you get too aggressive, they kind of get isolated and destroyed, and a lot of the historic units. You know, so you take a lot of that kind of logistical... Uh, realism, and I use realism quotes because, you know, helicopter doesn't land and just magically resupply everybody in the buildings around it. But uh, for what it's worth, you, you've got a lot of really historically cool and accurate uh, units. I think over over a thousand. Uh, so it's neat to play around with the ar- kind of armies that you can build. You know, if you want some kind of rush North Korean army with nothing but the cheapest of everything that's garbage. Uh, or you could get like a really high-end American, you know, airborne units. Uh, so it's, it's kind of cool. Um, I, I've enjoyed it. I've, I've played it a few times with uh, with Brett and with uh, with Lewis as well, the guy who uh, has done our new logo here for RTS. And uh, yeah, okay. I would guys? say that if I would say that if, if if I was to pick a single game for people to play in a structured way to understand a lot about strategy. Yeah, it actually probably surprised a few people here and say that they just do well with rock, paper, scissors in the sense that um, a lot of games have representational issues of how of, of how realistic or generalizable they are. But at the core, a lot of strategy amounts to making choices about, about what to do without knowing what your opponent will do. And the game that's one of the most atomic and basic in the way it represents that is rock, paper, scissors. But not just sort of one-off game, uh, finite games, if you play if you play repeated games of rock paper scissors, like uh, the way people win is by de- is by detecting sequential dependencies in the various choices that their opponent makes. So learning about the opponent over time, particularly their choices of how to, of what they of what what they're going to field, is a very is, is a very useful uh, is a very useful educational gesture. Of course, I'm obviously going to say that I, I really love Stark. Craft more than playing rock paper scissors, but just purely from the educational perspective, I would I would advise like that kind of course of action. Yeah, Adam, you're boring. You're not allowed on the podcast anymore. Okay, uh, <laughs> Brett, what's your favorite? Favorite game? This is hard because I kind of go all over. But uh, one of the ones that I put a lot of time in is the Arma series. And for those oh, God, unfamiliar with Arma, it's uh, it, it's kind of like the third person, you know. Shooter, kind of like Battlefield, except the, the developers at Arma, they, they, it's based off of the, they took the engine and it's based off of the virtual battle, um, you know, engine or whatever. So in the end, it comes down to being a game where, I don't want to use the term realistic because, you know, as one friend said, you can't really simulate the realism of humping a M240 machine gun 500 kilometers, he said. You press shift and, yeah. then, and then you run. Yeah, exactly. Versus an Arma, you just press a button and you go. 
But the thing I like about Armo is, uh, you know, the chance they give you, they allow you to kind of create any mission you want. And one of the most memorable, and this was back, you know, kind of during the whole counter piracy um, craze a couple of years ago, is uh, the group that I played with. We created an oil rig, and we uh, created kind of a little hostage uh, situation with, um, you know, players of both sides. And it was uh, it was fun to kind of um, see that unfold because, as you can imagine, it was a disaster for the attackers. As you know, next you're running around an oil rig and bad guys are popping out of nowhere, uh, shooting at you. So, you know, I like I like Arma a lot because there's just a lot of possibilities for players and for communities to kind of you know kind of uh, experiment and toy around with their own uh, mission set. You know, um, kind of thinking about what um, Adam Adam was saying, uh, I've, I've been mulling it a little bit, but uh, talking about kind of that meta game, thinking about what other people. Um, other people are thinking, and then combining that with Brett Perry already dumping into the the quote unquote war stories portion of what I'm sure most of our our podcast uh, will become a bunch of twenty or thirty something year old men relating stories of video games they've played is uh, like kind of the meta game. I do like that idea of of the meta game, and and you'll see that in stuff like Daisy. Where you're like, oh, it's a zombie, like zombie apocalypse simulator. No, it would be if it wasn't for the other people. Now it's just, you know, don't get assassinated by some jackass. Uh, but uh, I, I remember back in college, one of my kind of favorite sort of out of game moments was uh, if if anybody's ever played Warhammer 40k, not the tabletop thing. Okay, I don't have any time to paint figurines. Uh, we're talking about the video game one, so I'm not that bad. Um, but I convinced them that I had died. So I was playing orcs, which means you can have a thousand of whatever you want. Uh, and I go, oh, crap, you guys killed me. That's so bad. And I hear one of my buddies, uh, John, go, but hey, you're still you're still on the list. I'm like, whatever. I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm going to go watch some stuff on YouTube. I'm not dead. Uh, <laughs> I'm hiding in a corner of a map, building, like, the biggest army, and I wait, and I have this guy just watching for them to sort of converge in the middle and have a battle of a significant enough size. And then I wait until they're all destroyed, and then all of a sudden they're like, "No, no, he's not dead!" And I just start pouring into the. Ba- it's like you know, it's like that kind of stuff where you're not playing necessarily the game, which is fun to play the game, but you're also kind of playing the people outside. And I guess kind of thinking about that now, Adam, why do you say rock paper scissors over something like diplomacy? Because at least in diplomacy, you you have like some constrained and or potentially likely courses of action where, you know, boiling it down to three options seems kind of almost too minimalist. Well, I kind of I kind of said it took it from the idea of what was the most sim- the simplest way to introduce people to uh, strategy and uh, I kind of when I kind of think about that uh, I kind of think all right so the this is the most basic atomic level of strategic choice is making is making a decision about what you're going about what option you're going to field and but if you're looking for something more advanced i definitely believe that games like diplomacy are much more sophisticated and you could even go as far as to say that you take something like eve online which isn't a in which you have an opportunity for large coalitions of players going at various military and political ranks that that probably would be, in my view, kind of the optimal way to look at it. I mean, because you have a, a lot of the a, a lot of the same dynamics you see in the real world reproduced in a petri dish. I 
I totally agree, Adam. I, I you know, as a former, I say former, um, kind of in quotation marks, you know, Eve player. I mean, you definitely see that. It's, uh, I, I was, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not just, you know, it's not just about the ships you're flying. It really comes down to personality. Not, I don't want to say personalities, but I mean, uh, you know, individuals. I mean, uh, you know, you have certain guys that lead in a certain way. You know, certain guys that, you know. When when something happens, you know when uh, if they're you know if the, they react in a certain way, and it's uh, you know you can give examples. Result. No one's gonna judge you if you're like, oh man, if I'm flying my giant virtual yeah. carrier and somebody blah, blah, blah. No, there's no judgment here, Brett. Yeah. Can, so <laughs> yeah, an example would be is uh, you know I was playing with uh, this one guy, and uh, anytime uh, one of you know our outposts uh, would, would would get attacked. He would pull, he would rally the troops, you know, as many guys and as fast as possible and fly out in whatever fleet configuration it was. So, you know, it could be a whole bunch of, you know, small and different frigates or, you know, maybe, you know, cruisers, you know, without going out there without logistics. You know, it'd just be kind of a, a mismatch. Yeah, exactly. We'd be going out there. And so, you know, some of the times, you know, we would you know, get our asses kicked because, you know, it was kind of very, it was organized very in an impromptu manner. But other times, you know, the other, the opposing fleet commander would see our mishmash of ships. And so he would have no idea what to target. It's not like, okay, we got to hit the logistics or, you know, we, this, uh, everyone put your alpha on uh, the battle cruisers. It'd just be kind of, what, what, how do I deal with this? And so that's why, you know, I think, uh, you know, Adam's, uh, you know, spot on with, uh, you know, Eve's, I think, one of my favorite examples of just, you know, boiling it down to, you know, what happened, you know, kind of that fundamental uh, decision making. Yeah, but I think that one thing about Eve that also is important, which I'll mention very briefly, is that so a lot of games that we're going to play have very set rules and environments that constrain how the game is played. But in real life, the, the issue is that if you're a good strategist, you're trying to change the rules to your benefit in the sense of like uh, Napoleon. Napoleon said like uh, was lived in a time in which war was fairly tame and, and tame and for reasons of an informal agreement to keep nationalism down. So when Napoleon harnesses nationalism, he has an advantage over everyone else. Likewise, in EVE, there have been players who have been caught trying to cut the power lines to other players' houses in the real world. I mean, oh so, that, so, it, so in a sense, like, people... So, so they weren't willing to just accept, okay, I'm going to have the, the amount of moves I can consider be artificially constrained by competing in a virtual world. I'm going to go to this, this dude's house and cut his power while he's playing. We're not, we're not really, we're not holding it down for our kind of theme here. We're starting to make ourselves look like lunatics. But that's crazy. Because, you know, I had heard, uh, you know, I, I, I am not going to be the kind of person who's going to jump into the amount of bandwidth required to, like, really play EVE. Because, I mean, they have, like, a real economy worth, what, several billion dollars or something? One of the critiques of EVE is that you're basically playing Microsoft Excel. Yeah. And you're actually playing the game because, yeah, there's these epic battles and these epic coalitions that exist in EVE. But when you get into the nitty-gritty of EVE, you're doing some pretty inane, mind-numbing tasks that need to be done repeatedly to go ahead and maintain any sense of a fleet or an economy there. You so, mean like real life? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Endless mind-numbing tasks of 99% of what you do is for that 1% of time. Well, Adam kind of um, hit on something there in that EVE isn't necessarily a strategy game. I would say EVE is more akin to a simulation of what could be for a future rather than a proper strategy game. Like, um, there's no parameters placed on EVE in terms of what you buy, what you procure, how you build your fleets or anything like that. It's much more open-ended, and the, st- the strategy that results from it is much more organic and necessary based on the environment you're in, as opposed to, say, maybe a Command & Conquer, where you have set-piece um, options to choose from in order to defeat your opponent. Um, I might you be a little bit off in that, because I've I, I flirted with Eve, but I've certainly never gotten quite no, into it. Let That's me, my impression of it. Let me throw something out there for the audience here, and this is probably something we need to sort of build into our discipline uh, of putting this this podcast together. So for folks who have no idea what the hell we're talking about, and, and I am one of you, I've only observed EVE from the outside since we're talking about it so much. EVE is this massively multiplayer online game that is, like, it's in space, you've got spaceships, and, okay, so that seems kind of recognizable, and you can have anything from varying size, for, like, little fighters all the way up to, like, capital ships and, and carriers. And you can. The thing is, though, it's so open-ended, you can have your own corporations, you can have your own alliances, your own countries, you can have your own, uh, you can have your own sort of, like, diplomatic arrangements, you can have, uh, you can have anything. You know, you set it up, it's all the relationships between the players and, and what they decide. It's, like, not like a real re-time, real-time strategy game. A normal real-time strategy game where somebody says, hey, this is your ally, now play with them. Some games let you switch it around a little bit, but, you know, even even in this case, it's it's very open-ended. So you're basically allowed to do anything, and there's even one example. Uh, I forget what it was, and, and Adam, I have a sneaking suspicion, or Brett, either one of you is going to know what I'm talking about. But uh, there was this, actually it made it into news, like BBC International News, where some creepy underground coalition of people in EVE made some kind of, uh, I don't know, like backdoor deal where they're going to infiltrate this organization and they were going to bring it down. And they destroyed real-life millions of dollars of worth of virtual stuff. So, like, things that people had bought with real money that were playing this game with it, and because they had pretended to, you know, be part of this organization or to do this function, they had access to certain things and certain capabilities, they literally just brought down an entire group of people, which is insane. You know, when when we talk about, you know, what is, uh, you know, to go even further off the path here, talking about cyber war, hey, a bunch of guys as part of a game, and hey, that's, you know, it's the rules of the game. It's an open-ended game. You're allowed to do this stuff. But they did blow away people's real money in a real, like, a real game. So I just, yeah, Eve's crazy. Eve's, Eve seems just yeah. like a bad so you're, place you're to go. <laughs> yeah, it happens uh, It happens a lot. You're referring to the, just the so it was this alliance called Band of Brothers. And so Band of Brothers at its time was, you know, one of the largest alliances, you know, and it's fighting kind of the Goon Swarm Federation. But uh, with Band of Brothers, you know, there is a, there is a director, uh, a guy that worked his way up, uh, Hargoth uh, Agamar, that was kind of his, his screen name, I assume, not his real name. Um, well, you know, yeah, no, there's a lot of Nordic people that play the game, so. Yep, it, it is, uh, the developers are in Iceland. But, uh, you know, he worked his way up, and then, you know, he achieved, you know, he achieved kind of a, a C-level position where he had a lot of privileges. And next thing you know, all the funds are siphoned and, you know, the alliance is shut down with its infrastructure in shambles. So that kind of stuff happens. Another neat thing about EVE 
that I had experienced with was kind of the the infighting among uh, among uh, you know guys, not political military re- relations, not like that, but you would have different um, different factions of the same corporation, um, you know, go get uh, hit heads against each other really hard. So in my example, the we had the fleet commanders, you know, the guys, you know, the guys leading the ships into the battle. They were always arguing and having disagreements with the guys that were in charge of, you know, the logistics, the guys, you know, you know, making sure that our outposts have, you know, enough ships so that the fleets can, you know, keep going out and, you know, keep uh, keep just railing on people. And so you'd see these, you know, disagreements. The supply guys, you know, they, they'd want to do things at a certain pace or something versus the fleet commanders. You know, these guys, they just wanted to find find a, find a target and blow it up. Uh, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to deal with, um, you know, all of the necessary intricacies that go into, you know, the logistics. And so, you know, that's something that I, I don't know. Is that do you, do you think that's something that, you know, you we kind of see outside of Eve kind of in. Uh, yeah. I think it, I think it kind of boils down a lot to kind of what you what you find most interesting personally about the practice of strategy in the sense of that. The game like Eve, much of like the, as Lucian correctly says, most of the quantitative aspects of which strategy is better than the other can be handled via an Excel spreadsheet. Whereas like, a, and most of the fun or involvement for the players comes from the alliances, the social relationships, and so on and so on. Whereas a game like Starcraft, you, a lot, there, there is a very high strategy space in terms of, of the way you can produce build orders and units and, which ones are useful, but it's also very much a game of skill in the sense of your reaction time, your ability, your ability to get those workers moving and, uh, and, and putting minerals and Vespane gas into your treasury. Which and how more fa- of. And, and how fast. And additional pylons. Yes, exactly. How fast you can do a, like, do a lot of in, com, very complex forms of information processing in real time. And, in terms of people I run across who are their interest in strategy, there are some people who are much more interested in the social aspect, and there are others who are much more interested in just sort of the aspect of how a, of how a one genius commander fighting another genius commander do, does all of this in their own head. Yeah, there's. Well, uh, go ahead, Lucian. Uh, sorry. Um, you know, the 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 run of the mill strategy games are really just a matter of optimization of resources. In terms of beating your opponent, if you look at um, some like uh, the, one of the most formative games for me was Master of Orion 2, <clears throat> and in that um, there you, it, it's terribly deterministic. Most strategy games. And what are is it? Could you kind of describe it a little bit? Because I actually Master. don't recall this game. Uh, early 90s uh, space-based turn-based strategy game, um, pretty much considered the greatest. Uh, turn-based strategy game in certain circles. Um, it's not, it's, yeah, right. Um, it's it's not really ever been improved upon in in many people's opinions. Though there's some games that are coming out now. It's one of the 4X games. Uh, explore, expand, exploit. I forget what the other E stands for. Um, but even in, in all of these games, it's a question of you know all the technology trees are finite. Um, the way you research technology is deterministic. The player chooses the technology to develop. The player chooses the the uh, order in which to develop the technology. And I even ro- will rope in civilization in this and being very, very deterministic for 
society-based strategy games. Um, in no game are, is a leader able to go ahead and just be at the whims of what its society has produced. The leader decides what the society, society produces. The leader, yeah, it's, so what, the point I guess I'm getting at here is that Eve is open-ended in that you have a myriad of individuals who have their own notions of what should be done, and you don't exactly know the efficacy of them to follow orders. You don't exactly know if they're going to do their jobs correctly, and that's real life. Whereas these games, you play against a, a, compu- a computer, more, more likely than not, or even another human player, to where if you're playing them, who more optimally chose to go down the technology tree or who more optimally chose to use the, the, the very limited, normally two types of resources in a game to produce their combatants to fight against the other player. Um, so I think the reason why we maybe are, are, are kind of stuck on Eve right now is that it gets the closest to what human strategy is and human management of talent and human decisions to go ahead and cooperate with each other, whereas with all these other games, which we all love to play and stuff, it's it's not even a modeling of real life. It's just a a set piece game, so to speak. So I guess I would I guess I would push back on that a little bit, and for a very technical reason, in the sense that with a game like chess, uh, ch- with with like chess, you it is it is possible in theory to mechanize the whole of chess, and that's that like that's it was a very famous mathematical result that was proved in the early 1900s about the about that, which I'm not going to bore readers with. And a lot of and with with, with ever, almost everything after chess, actually making a computer play it becomes much much more difficult because of the size of the game tree that the, the, the decision maker has to consider. And there's another interesting thing too about that certain game that certain games may also make the actual creation of a game tree in itself computationally infeasible. What this more means in everyday language is that there is a large there is a large element of chance involved simply because of the sheer amount of moves that every player has to consider and that there's no and that there are certain balanced games as day 9 uh, day 9 who's a caster for League of Legends and StarCraft said because no one stratagem or Faction has an inherent advantage. It's, you could say that that is sort of the, it's a very limited view of strategy, but it's the view that corresponds roughly to what Clausewitz said about the chance of play, the, the, I mean, the play of chance and the genius of the commander. You know, that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and I, I want to touch real quick back on what Lucian said. I would love to see a game where you do not have control on the tech tree or societal development. Like, you have you can do stuff like build like almost almost civilization with a tech tree that's randomized and some parts of like what your cities do randomized so it depends on hey if you found a new city here your society starts optimizing a certain technology cuz suddenly it has access to a resource and maybe it's not one that you want but it's one that makes things let's say better for them uh, that that would that would be that would be really fascinating but to get kind of more to that point where Lucian you were talking about sort of the determinism of it and and the optimization is is I think that's why I kind of tend towards stuff like um, like war games or I, I'll, I'll tend toward uh, I really did like the uh, 
video game uh, version of uh, Warhammer 40K just because there's a certain, and, and I apologize because I'm in uh, JMO right now, one of my joint professional military education courses, JPME, for those in the know, and, and we're talking about operational art, and, and optimization is just boring. I think, and, and Adam will disagree with me, I know, because he does love StarCraft, which means I know kind of where his mind is at. But being able to actually have, hey, I'm really good at figuring out where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do, vice, how many resources can I generate to fight almost a purely attritional battle, God, just seems irritating and boring. You know, and, and maybe maybe that's just me, but but when a game gives you and forces you the ability to husband your resources them and deploy them in an operationally sound way, then then it, you know it gets kind of exciting. It gets a little bit out of that Excel sheet kind of mentality. So I think you know I'm gonna I'm kind of in between both of you guys because on one end I completely see you know the optimization you know that that being what is the boilerplate of most real-time strategy games. You know, how do I do achieve objective Y in the most efficient manner? You know, we'll take a war game, for example, since uh, Matt's talked to brought it up already, but, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, you have X amount of points. What's the perfect, you know, unit deployment, you know, whether it's, a, you know, that you can do, you know, how many, you know, SAMs, how many infantry, you know, how many tanks, that kind. But at the same time, I think there's kind of a, you know, a, a decision loop uh, element if, or, or an element of you know trying to penetrate the decision loop uh, of, of your adversary. So like uh, you know Boyd's uh, Uda loop, yeah, yeah exactly. Fine, and Uda loop, uh, I I want to you know introduce it to readers that or listeners that don't know what it is. But can someone remind me what the acronym? Observe, what it, what it actually... orient, decide, act. act. So it's yep. the sort of the steps that Boyd imagined are sort of universal to making decisions and i mean i i think it's rather self-explanatory you know observe orient decide act i mean unless someone thinks it needs some more edification there but it's it sounds pretty simple you know for for the layman but uh yeah so i think you know a lot of strategy games it comes down to you know using your resources as optimal as possible but at the same time recognizing that your adversary is a person so they're going to do things in a certain way. And, you know, in Wargame, for example, it may be, okay, this, you know, Matt, for example, may just love his North Korean tanks. And so, you know. I don't. The field I've learned is, that lesson. <laughs> but the field may just be saturated with uh, North Korean tanks. So that's going to always stick in the mind. Well, you know, in the back of my mind, I'll be thinking, well, you know, an A-10 is sure awfully expensive. And I won't be able to, you know, have this, you know, cover as much ground. But. You know, if the time comes to, you know, destroy Matt's uh, North Korean tanks, you know, it may pay off. So so that I, I, I kind of stand in between you guys kind of, you know, I, I do think that, you know, art at, at, the, at the core, it's, you know, using your resources efficiently. But at the same time, there's kind of a, a human uh, aspect of as well that you have to account for. Well, so yeah. I think that I think that the uh, I think kind of that the. The, the dividing line in terms of how you represent strategy gets really to two very two extremes. The first one is the way the view that Zomini had about the battlefield as just the a strategy is the art of making war on the map. The other com, other complete opposite extreme is the prisoner's dilemma in game theory, where you are making a decision about about some about whether or not to cooperate or defect, 
and based on an uncertain estimate as to what the other person will choose. And the reason why I brought up the prisoner's dilemma is that people actually do have prisoner's dilemma competitions where they play prisoner's dilemma competitively. And, and to see to see what? who – yes, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. You can uh, – like uh, you, both humans and machines actually – It's like ESPN add, the Ocho here? <laughs> yeah, but it is like an interest. Once you, once you actually add turn prisoner's dilemma into a repeated game, it becomes very interesting because you can remember what that person did to you the last round of the game. Are you going to reciprocate if they did good? Are you going to do bad? That so I think that those two op, those two are two things that are push and pull in terms of game design dynamic. And it's very rare to find one that say combines both fairly well. Lucian. You can, um, you can stomp over Adam, though. I mean, feel free, because I've heard three times you're like, but, and then Adam's like, computer talk, and then you disappear well, for a little bit. Well, uh, to, <laughs> to the, the point Adam made previously in regards to uh, chess, yeah, there's, for all intents and purposes, a uh, non-computable amount of possibilities in playing a game of chess, just an 8 by 8 board with set piece arrangement to play an opponent. Um, but, I mean, that, that, I, in, in speaking towards Eve and the human element in game, which I've kind of been going ahead and uh, phrasing as organic, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's in knowing your opponent and in knowing who you compete against that the limitless possibilities start becoming limited. That's, that's, those are the heuristic tools we use to go ahead and start understanding our opponent and understanding who we need to be in response to our environment in the competition. Um, so while, yeah, I, I, I totally understand that there, there are theoretically limitless possibilities, you know, the way we go ahead and we start d- delving through and sussing through all of that to bring it to a level that we can actually deal with and a, a level that we can actually comprehend is through that human level. And while a game, any, any simulation we create, any game we create um, is artificial compared to how we actually interact with other human beings, um, we still bring that human element to it. And going back to Eve again, that's what I find so fascinating about Eve is that it's, it's it's inherently intrinsically a human endeavor, whereas these other games are. I I I, I notice a distinct a distinction between, um, you know, uh, the games like Civilization, games like uh, chess, and how we actually interact with each other. And if you talk to if you read grandmasters and how they prepare for chess matches, they understand the individual. Fisher was was certainly an individual or a chess player that spoke towards the individual more so than the game itself. Kasparov is another example to where he spoke towards whom he was playing. And I think the reason why he got so frazzled, I might be wrong about this, but I remember, I think I remember reading this. Kasparov got so frazzled playing a computer because he couldn't read the computer. He couldn't read the, the, the subtle signs of where his opponent was in the decision making. Didn't, didn't um, he beat Deep Blue though, kind of? riffing off of that frustration where he just may started making random moves and the computer was trying to predict it and it had no idea what the hell he was going to do? I, I don't remember quite, but... Uh, maybe. So like just trolling the computer? Yeah. Exactly. He won the won by trolling and they eventually fixed it, but he, he I, 
I, I can't remember. We we can look it up and, and talk about that one on a different podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, Adam Adam is so kind. He, he apologized in in the Skype thing. I am I am trying to actively. I'm not trying to rag on anybody. I'm trying to actively encourage people to interrupt as one would during a normal conversation, as that is the eventual construct uh, we're going for here. But you know, we've we've been talking a lot about sort of the real-time strategy because that's kind of you know uh, we're all va- we're all vaguely in, interested in in sort of decision making, and we all really kind of like history and military affairs and that kind of thing. So we would naturally be inclined to play a lot of the real-time strategy stuff. But uh, as we kind of get to the end of the, uh, the 45 minutes we had allotted for this thing, uh, for our first episode, uh, let's talk a little bit about, like, sort of first-person shooters. And, you know, I like them. I'm playing Destiny right now. I, I love Battlefield. But I think it's useless. I really think they're utterly useless. I, I remember playing uh, maybe one of the Call of Duties, and... Um, and they had a special mode, and I was really excited playing. This is the, I think, the best version, was where they would get a whole bunch of people onto the map, and they would give you one life. So instead of everybody bunny hopping around like a bunch of idiots, jumping in and out of tanks, trying to paradrop out of helicopters onto people with rocket launchers and killing themselves, like all sorts of madness, all of a sudden you have one life, and you don't want to be the guy who's going to spend the next seven minutes waiting while everybody else finishes playing the game. And all of a sudden, sort of decision-making got slightly more realistic. Not really realistic, but uh, I, this, you saw some more rational, like, real-life people creeping around corners, trying to hide, crawling along the ground, instead of just, hey, I'm going to respawn, I'm going to run through a field. But, uh, you know, that's kind of my, my riff. They're a lot of fun, they're interesting, but I don't know how useful they are. And I know Brett, Brett kind of described... A, uh, how how he kind of got some some utility out of Arma, but um, Adam and and Lucian, what do you guys think? Well, it's the incentivization of uh, decision making. What you know, standard first person shooter online game is who killed the most. So it's your KD spread that that matters the most uh, in most of these games. But you go ahead and change it to where it's not, you know, that your your existence within the game matters it's how how many existences did you go ahead and take in the game so yeah going and changing it to where you are now incentivized to last as long as you can is necessarily going to change the, the decision making of the individual in the game when it, is it i mean when you think i'm going to just take what you what you said at the very end i mean you know lasting as long as you can because you know ultimately you know i mean that that's what everyone's goal is or that's you know yeah i mean it, it's 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 in uh it, it's in the front of your mind so um you know i think that's uh you know that, that that's almost a driver i mean in in some setups it depends on the construct of the game you know if it's like you know team deathmatch counter strike or something you know respawns every two seconds you know everyone's going to run towards the middle and see who can you know get as many headshots uh before the other guy but if it's you know a slower paced and what I've noticed to be kind of the big um, the, the big driver is if it takes if it's one of those games where there's like you know a seven minute build up and then when the bullets or when the action actually starts it actually it only goes for like you know a minute or two minutes I mean I see I see that as more useful I wouldn't agree with uh, Hipple's uh, comment that 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 they're almost useless I think 
I think in certain constructs that we'll have the chance to dive in through, you know, through the, this uh, this uh, podcast series um, that, that first person shooters can provide. But what, what do you think, Adam? I think that the design problem with with FPS games is that they, in order for them to be fun, they have to preserve an illusion, and that illusion is that the individual combatant has control over that much control over whether he or she lives or dies. And I mean, in the sense of that, if you're, say, like you're on the Western Front and you're just sitting there minding your own business, and then suddenly there's a German artillery barrage in your glass. That's, I mean, a, like, a, I think that that's an extreme, and there's, and it's, I'm not going to argue that tactical training can't keep people alive. It obviously does. But the problem with making an FPS game is inherently that first, the, like the the proper level of organization is likely this is likely that the squad or some other type of maneuver, of some type of, of of group unit, and the second is that what the individual does does may only have a very small impact on whether they live or die or not. I think Adam's exactly right, and the the illusion also goes further into the individual as well as it does go into the things wholly outside the individual's control, and namely what I mean is fatigue. Um, Brett kind of mentioned this earlier to where you're carrying around that weapon for prolonged periods of time is exhausting, and when an individual becomes exhausted, their ability to make decisions and to accurately execute the actions they need to take uh, diminishes as well based on exhaustion. And uh, the illusion that first-person shooters create is that a person's limitlessly um, or has limitless uh, um, staying power and ability to go endurance, um, as well as that they have more control over what happens in their environment. So I think it's much harder for a game to go ahead and approximate a tactical situation than it is the strategic situation. You know uh, that just reminded me. So I I was recently out in a uh, at a bachelor party out in South Carolina, and one of the things we did is we went out to uh, play paintball. Now, one of the kind of vague rules that I know, and you know, if if I'm wrong here, anybody listening can kind of correct me here. But from the guys that I know that are in the soft community, like uh, some of them discourage other guys from doing stuff like paintball because it's a lot of fun. You can do it. It's a lot of you reiterate sort of ways of acting and there's a lot of stuff that you do in paintball or that are sensible in paintball that are completely stupid uh for real life i mean obviously it's 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 not a real firefight you're hiding behind bushes you're you have certain sort of level of aggression because um because you're not actually going to die and uh but it's it's still something familiar so they worry that that kind of mentality will accidentally spill into someone's sort of vernacular uh on a on a real life tactical level and uh, i don't know how that how how true that is, but I've I've had one or two guys kind of tell me that. Um, but but something that I noticed in in one of the, my friends that was that was there, uh, we were playing a simulated version of of D-Day. So they had these three boxes on one end of the field, a few berms, a few bunkers that were kind of like tank caltrops, uh, and then a a big concrete kind of face where uh, guys on the other team uh, could hide. And uh, the whole goal for this game we were playing is a whole bunch of dudes rush out of these boxes uh, that were the amphibious assault ships and um, or the or the landing craft, sorry, uh, and and they try to rush and take these uh, these bunkers from uh, from these German players. And the German players are of course trying to eliminate you. And there's a time limit, so people are kind of being more aggressive. They're not just hiding. But but one of the guys that was there. <laughs> 
he he had never really thought about this. And, and you know, we're all students of history. And uh, if anyone's listened to Dan Carlin's Blueprint to Armageddon, if you really want to kind of understand, we were talking about the Western Front. We want to talk about uh, you know World War One. I, I, it's beautiful. When I say the word beautiful, I'm not exaggerating. It is an incredible story of history. But he had never thought about, you know, guys in the trenches or what that must have been like. You know, he watched a movie and he's like, wow, that sucks, you know, to use the parlance, but he'd never really tried to feel like what it was. And as small and as maybe superficial as we may think it was, he turned to me afterwards and he said, I had never thought about this. I'm sitting in this stupid little box and I'm so scared to run out because I'm, I think someone's just going to be sitting on the other side and it's just going to blast me with paintballs. Uh, like, I, I wonder how, and I, and I was like, you know, if you feel like that with a paintball game, imagine what it feels like when 50 cal rounds are flying through, you know, taking guys out while you're still in the craft. And you know that that gate's going to come down and you're going to have to rush the beach and you probably won't make it. But I, I just sort of, I reveled in that moment of someone else's realization where all these kind of games and all these movies that we've been acclimated to Suddenly, he felt a little something. Only a small approximation, but that game that we were playing gave him, like, a real-life insight I would have never thought someone would have gained from it, you know, as small as it was. But that sort of puts him onto a path to a better understanding. So, I, I don't know. That was that was something cool that, that I'd experienced that I thought was really kind of worthwhile from from people learning from a game in a way I didn't expect. Matt, you and I both are graduates of Georgetown. I think, I'm not sure if you were a graduate from SSP, I did, but for me that moment came when walking, I was walking the battlefield at Gettysburg and then realizing that pretty much the Confederates were screwed, were screwed in the package charge from long before they ever reached that ridge line. And I was walking that and I was imagining cannonballs exploding around, like a, a artillery shells exploding around me without being able to do anything and i just thought wow that's just that that that's that that's that's bad that's horrible i feel like and i feel like that getting that kind of experiential integration is very hard in a game but it's definitely possible yeah to back that up uh i've also had the chance to visit gettysburg and i remember you know looking at uh you know big round top and little round top and you know, you, you don't really think of it's hard to visualize terrain unless you're right there because I mean, it's you know, you, you, you see these things or you think, OK, that's a hill. But it's like, man, I mean, from, from that angle, you know, such and such is impossible. And, and um, you know, I, I, I've, I've never been, you know, in that in that experience. And it's so I don't know what it, what it feels like, but. I mean, it, there are there are definitely, you know, I think as as Matt pointed out, I mean, there so there's definitely some, uh, you know, s- some some areas where it's just where you know games or you know simulations in general um, don't don't uh, or, or, or fall short of the gap. I, w- I wonder if Oculus, uh, sort of the whole series of, of VR environments, might kind of solve that problem because I've seen I've seen a lot of these videos. With people in very visceral, visceral ways reacting to to these like in-person games where it's it, you're not on a screen and everything's 3D. Yeah, you get it. You know, it's it's some Quake, you know, engine that that's playing. But people freak out. They rip the things off their heads and they run out of the room. You know, they don't care that they realize that they they're in a game. So I wonder if that might 
you know, that might change the game. Um, you know, if if you had a World War One simulation where, uh, you know, someone kind of gets that kind of visceral feeling, you know, it's not real by any stretch, but even in the simulated environment, finding yourself in a position where your brain starts telling you, no, you might die, even though well, you I mean, know that, you won't. Is that necessary for, I mean, what, what, what are the, the limits for game developers to go ahead and incorporate the realism? I mean, the, you know, for a mass audience, I mean, ha, where, where does the appeal to a game uh, compared to realism start to fade? Um, you know, I don't know, you know, having been shot at in Afghanistan, that's not necessarily right. something I look for in a game. No, now, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, by no means am I suggesting that this is something that, that you'd want to achieve in every game, but just like with, with particular movies where directors try to push for realism, or certain, even, even museums where they try to make things as visceral for you as possible, uh, I'm not saying they're gonna make, you know, StarCraft, try to seem real but I'm sure there's there's going to be a market maybe for really hardcore gamers or even for historians to a certain point to try to virtualize at least some of that because you want to empathize with the people that are in that moment of history because trying to understand their decision making their their ideas what they say why they say it some of that does come from like you got to see it like I think uh, Brett Brett was saying he he went to Gettysburg and uh, and uh, Br- Brett and Adam were both saying they were there and they looked at it and they got they kind of under- got a little gleaning of understanding. But yeah, I don't think they're gonna. T- I don't think anyone has a desire to turn Battlefield into some horrifying, realistic demonstration of what it's like to be in a conventional battle uh, with a you know an ar- Chinese armored regiment. I, I don't. But anyways, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think uh, I'm I'm kind of being reminded of a conversation Adam and I had some number of years ago in relation to uh, the the uh, Modern Warfare franchise to where the games began as you were a lowly GI in World War II and evolved once it became uh, the more modern game or the more, more contemporary games to where you were essentially a super soldier, an elite soldier, and that was all driven by the need for narrative, as I understand it. Uh, Adam may remember our conversation a little bit better than myself, but uh, you know, what, 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 what's, what's in my mind right now is also the Halo series, to where the success of the Halo series has been the protagonist, the Master Chief there, John 117, to where everybody's kind of hitched hitched themselves to the story that the Master Chief has lived through their actions, um, and that's what's made it in a successful s- franchise, the uh, online multiplayer notwithstanding. So, I think that in regards to realism, what we will see in the future is what we've seen in the past, is that there are certain elements of realism that give a your average gamer a, a sort of a counterfeit feeling, allows them to suspend disbelief in the sense of that they, they, they play Call of Duty games so they can understand all of, caricatures of all of the soft lingo and, uh, and, and, and the bits of the NATO alphabet. And they, by <laughs> those little bits of, uh, those little bit, bits and morsels that they're thrown makes them feel much more involved than they would if they were playing Unreal Tournament and jumping around with laser blasters killing aliens. And, but it's not, it's not I mean, the, the reason why a lot of, I think a lot of people like, uh, who blog, the military who blog about the, about the Call of Duty series have a very 
and a somewhat ambivalent or even antagonistic relationship with the Call of Duty series is precisely because it gives all of the superficial trappings of realism without any of the cost or burden of actually having to have lived through it. And, but of course, I mean, it's what makes money. It's the same motivation that's behind action movies. Over time, they become more realistic as they hire better military trainers and advisors for the special effects, but it's still very much a pale imitation of the real thing. That's why mm-hmm. the 90s, that's why the ones in the 80s and 90s are better, because they don't, they don't play pretend. Yeah, it's, it's like Die Hard. Die Hard is better than almost all action movies today. And you're like, well, it doesn't look that great. And you're like, who cares? It's a guy running across glass with a machine gun, dropping corpses on on police cars and killing terrorists. I don't I don't need to feel like it's real. I know it's an action movie. Sorry, Brett. I think you're about to say something. Well, I think uh, I, the the Call of Duty example is really interesting, and it's something that we're definitely going to dive in. But you mentioned the earlier games, and you know one thing that kind of stands out that um, you guys or some of our listeners may be able to recall is in one of the in one of the earlier ones, Call of Duty: The Finest Hour. You start out as you know some you know so you know Soviet uh, you know recruit. You're on you're on a rowboat, you know, going into Stalingrad. You know, you get off the boat. You know, there's whistles. Everyone's just being you know pointed to the front lines, which obviously sounds like machine gun oh, fire and it doesn't sound like a, gun, a good place you? to go yeah that's the thing they're handing they're handing out guns half the guys get guns and but they you don't get, get bullets and the other guys yeah you, you get ammo you get ammo but you don't get a gun they give you they give you bullets and then they, they, they tell you to go straight forward and if you don't you get shot by you know machine typical, guns behind you yeah yeah soviet uh soviet uh discipline but uh you know it's uh it's interesting in how you've seen the evolution to where you get to, like, you know, the modern warfare Call of Duty games. You're like this super soldier. I mean, you're like this, you know, tier one badass, you know, kicking down doors, breaching charges, being thrown onto walls, and um, et cetera. And it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's as uh, Lucian mentioned, it's, it's kind of this this demand for kind of that, that super soldier feel that we, we saw originate with Halo Combined with um, what Adam said about kind of that that that, that uh, taste of authenticity to kind of you know make you feel like you're actually that super soldier as opposed to some guy you know in a ring you know I think I think that's um, that's where things have been going because fueled just by the general demand. A nice way to top all of this off, I think, is that uh, throughout our discussion we've been talking about a kind of games that. On one hand, games that empower the empower the player, make the player feel powerful in the sense of, uh, and, and games that are actually constrain the player in various ways. And just in terms of as, as a gamer, whether or not either are fun to you really is a matter of aesthetics and personal preference. I can, so both of them are pretty interesting and in their own strategic qualities, but they have vastly different char- play characteristics and fan bases. Mm-hmm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, actually, I guess, well, you can decide who the lady is. Uh, we need to uh, kick out of here uh, in a weird sort of temporal twist here. The Sea Control episode where I'll be announcing this episode of RTS, I am about to record. Um, so this will come out after that. Uh, and I'm sure all of you guys have real stuff to do uh, on a Sunday. But, uh Hey, it's been a pleasure, and uh, if anybody's managed to stick with us until this uh, late hour uh, here at the end, we're going to try to do this once or twice a uh, once or twice a month 
you know, we'll figure it out. And uh, eventually, you know, if he's good and learns how to operate all the things, uh, I will hand, be handing the reins over to our most illustrious uh, Brett Perry to keep this thing going when uh, I have 38 pounds of baby crap to clean out uh, of my new son every day. Uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll be dealing with that, and uh, he can carry the load. But uh, all right, gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, we'll talk soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everyone else. Perfect, and we're done. Okay, guys. Um, I'm going to jump over to – yeah, good. Definitely good.